as our children are finding their way to the junior church, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter, believe it or not, verse 30. I'm sorry. There's more than 30 verses in this book. Have you noticed that? Genesis chapter 30. There we go. Verse 1. Which means we're not in chapter 29 anymore. So we're moving. We're moving. So we're going to be in the the next uh, 30 weeks in chapter 30. No, I'm just kidding. We, of course, are in a section of the book of Genesis where God is birthing um, a nation, the nation of Israel. He does that through three people, Abraham, Isaac, and now we're in the section where the promises have been transferred to Jacob. One of the things about the book of Genesis, and this is the reason I wanted to get into it with our church, is... It truly is the book of beginnings. In other words, if you didn't have a knowledge of the book of Genesis, you would have no understanding from the time frame of God where everything came from. The only thing you're really left with is man's opinion. Man pretends that what he sees today has always been because he has to have some kind of explanation for where everything came from, since man was not there at the very beginning. He deifies his five senses, and he pretends that processes he can see now have always been. But the Bible, of course, is very, very different. It gives you a very clear answer where everything came from. The universe, life, man himself, marriage... We're in a culture that wants to redefine marriage as if it's ours to redefine. Marriage comes from God. Thank you, the book of Genesis. The origin of evil, the origin of clothing. I noticed you all came to church wearing clothes. And we thank you for doing that. But there's a reason why you do that. It's in the book of Genesis. The origin of religion, salvation, language itself. Language is, why do people speak different languages? The origin of government, where did that come from? The origin of nations, where did that come from? It's all in the book of Genesis. Unfortunately, a lot of our uh, people that we agree with on young earth creationism, Genesis 1 through 11, stop there. They just stop at chapter 11 as if chapter 12 doesn't follow chapter 11. But if you just stay patient with the book of Genesis, you'll see the origin of something very, very special. The nation of Israel. Through whom the Messiah is going to come to the earth. And how did God start the nation of Israel? Who did he use? He gave promises to Abraham, later passed down to Isaac, later passed down to Jacob. And with the Jacob story, what you're starting to learn, what we are starting to learn, is another specificity concerning Genesis, the 12 tribes of Israel. What are these 12 tribes and and where did they come from? First of all, should I care about the 12 tribes? Well, I think we we should because the whole world is going to be evangelized in the tribulation period by Israel's 12 tribes. Revelation 7. The tribulation period is going to be followed by the thousand-year kingdom, in which the 12 tribes will be very, very important. 
Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you that you have who have followed me in the regeneration of all things, the kingdom in other words, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will sit upon twelve thrones judging who? The twelve tribes of Israel. Oh, I don't care about the twelve tribes. It's just genealogical stuff. Well, you're... You're not going to be very happy in the millennial kingdom because they're very prominent. In fact, there is suspended over the earth, as I speak, a city shaped like a cube, which is going to come to the earth, and we will dis- we will participate in that in the last two chapters of the Bible, called the eternal state. And because the city, the New Jerusalem, is set up like a cube, there'll be three gates, 12 total, on each side of the city. And each of those 12 gates, every time you walk in and out of a gate, you'll look at the gate and you'll see there that each gate is named after one of the 12 tribes. So apparently God thinks the 12 tribes is very, very significant. In fact, it's hard to imagine a future in God without some sort of reference to these 12 tribes. Which leads to a really important question. Where did these 12 tribes come from? Where did they originate? The rest of the Bible will not give you any information on that. You have to learn it moving through the Bible chronologically And we're learning about it here at the end of Genesis 29 and the beginning of Genesis 30. Just as Genesis is aggressive in terms of telling us where sin came from, where salvation came from, where government came from, where language and languages came from, it is equally aggressive telling us where these 12 tribes originated God took some unfortunate circumstances taking place in Haran, an area to the north of the nation of Israel, where Jacob had fled from the murderous wrath of Esau, fleeing there to Haran. And it's there that Jacob, as we have discovered, finds his two wives, (laughs) The first wife he married under deceptive circumstances. Her name was Leah. The second wife is the one that he received waiting upon the Lord, the one that he had set his affection on. Her name is Rachel. And through this Jacob story, as Jacob now is interacting with Leah and her maidservant, Rachel and her maidservant, In other words, Jacob having a sexual relationship with four women. Sounds like some of the people I hear about in the NBA, for example. A bunch of children from a bunch of different women. Not that the NBA is the only place that does this, but that's where I hear about it the most because I happen to follow basketball. Not for reasons I'm explaining here. (laughs) But when you... You follow sports, you hear about all this stuff. Um, and this kind of sounds like something like that. I mean, one man fathers the tribes through four different women. You know, what in the world is going on here? And yet God took a very messy, sticky situation, deception, um, all kinds of things, and used that messy situation or situations to form the foundation of his special nation, the nation of Israel. That's why your life is not an accident. A lot of us come from messy, sticky, less than ideal situations. And we think that somehow our lives don't matter. And yet what we're learning here as God is putting the foundation into his special nation, the nation of Israel, is he is taking what is messy and turning it around into something good. I think that might be one of the dominant themes, if not the dominant theme of the book of Genesis. You'll see it through a man named Joseph who was completely mistreated by his brothers 
In fact, in this chapter, Genesis 30, we're going to see the birth of Joseph. And Joseph, at the end of the book of Genesis, to his brothers says, well, what you meant for evil, God meant for what? For good. And that's what's happening in Joseph's life. And that's what's happening with these 12 tribes. And if you know Jesus Christ personally and you're walking with him, that's what's happening in your life as well. Because God takes lemons and turns it into what? To lemonade. So as Jacob has now had a sexual relationship with Leah, his first wife, from that union came forth four of the twelve tribes. Reuben, number one. Simeon, number two. Levi, number three. Judah, number four. Reuben means see. Simeon means here. Levi means attached. And Judah means praise. And it's through Levi and Judah that are going to come two great institutions of the nation of Israel. The institution of the priests, Levi. And then also the institution of the kings, Judah. One of the points that we made is that in God, you'll notice that government and the church, so to speak, are separate. Separate institutions. Of course, we commented on the fact that today the secularist has pushed things too far and made it sound like Christianity and the Christian worldview can have no influence on the affairs of the state. And we, of course, would reject that. But we accept at the end of the day that the church and the government are separate sovereigns. That's what's being developed here with Levi, the priests coming from that line or tribe, and Judah, the kings coming from the tribe of Judah. Islam does not respect the separate sovereigns doctrine. It takes church and state and merges them together. And I bring this up because we're living here in the Sugarland area and surrounding areas where there is a rapidly growing Muslim population. They are, as you follow the local news, seeking higher office, seeking influence on the school board, seeking influence at the highest levels of government, local, state, federal. And what you have to understand is when you get behind a Muslim for office, and what I'm saying here is extremely politically incorrect, If they're a consistent Muslim, you're getting behind someone that believes in theocracy, that wants to take church and state and merge them together. There is no such thing as separate sovereigns in Islam. All you have to do is look at the areas of the Middle East that have Islamic states, and you will see that they are all theocracies. I bring this up because a lot of people who in our church who are involved in local politics have told me now that the Republican Party locally is sort of opening the door to more and more of an Islamic influence on the grounds that the population is changing and we want to win. So we need to accommodate Islam. Not understanding that what you're dealing with in Islam is a different worldview you're dealing with people that for the most part do not believe in the separation between church and state. They do not believe in separate sovereigns. And their goal is to take Islam and make it the official religion of the United States. And if you won't submit to that, then you find yourself on the wrong side of the legal system. That's what Islam does everywhere it goes. You're dealing with people, and what I'm speaking of here is the system that they're aligning with. You're dealing with people that, for the most part, do not understand the First Amendment, have no interest in the First Amendment. They do not understand the separate sovereigns concept that the United States was built upon. 
this nation that we are now uh, blessed to live in comes from the pages of biblical truth. If you don't believe me, we've done a lot of studies around the 4th of July time documenting that. And this book that our country was built upon comes out here in Genesis 29 and Genesis 30 and keeps the kings and the priests separate. In fact, the last time we were together, I gave you some examples of kings like David. No, not David. Saul and Uzziah that wanted to become priests. And they usurped priestly prerogatives. Saul lost his whole kingdom, 1 Samuel 13, for doing that. Uzziah became a leper until his dying day, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, for doing that. The only person that's going to be able to merge these two separate sovereigns is Jesus in the millennial kingdom. That's the only one that's going to be effectively and able to successfully do it. And until that day arrives, you keep the two institutions separate. They have separate functions. The government's role is to restrain evil. The church's function is redemption. Two separate sovereigns, two separate functions under God. And here you see the beginning of it through the birth of number one, Levi. That's where the priests come from. Number two, Judah. That's where the kings come from. That's how relevant the pages of your Bible are in the time period that you're living in. At some point, we've got to take this book, the Bible, and start to apply it to all of life, including who you vote for, who you support, what worldviews you'll get behind, and what worldviews you will not get behind. I, for one, am not interested in supporting Muslims for any higher office, period. And the reason for that is they come from a completely different perspective than I'm coming from. I respect the separate sovereign's doctrine. They do not. Now, they'll, they'll talk a very good game of tolerance and openness and all of these kinds of things until they get the levers of power. And once they get their hands on the levers of power, you'll see a radical change in how they act. And don't take my word for it. Take it from people themselves that are refugees from any Islamic country. They will tell you the exact same thing. And the things that are happening in the United States, they will tell you, are very reminiscent of how Islam took hold of the area of the world, many times in the Middle East, that they are fleeing from. And that wasn't even in my notes at all, so look at that. Let's just close in prayer right there. That's pretty heavy stuff, amen? So let's move from there to chapter 30, verses 1 through 8. For now we learn about two more sons born who will become part of the 12 tribes of Israel. We have uh, kind of a lengthy outline here to go through, but don't worry, it will go by very fast. And notice, if you will, Bill has two sons, and it starts with Rachel's complaint. So Leah, her sister, has just been impregnated. She has four children. God opened Leah's womb, but allowed Rachel to be barren, and Rachel is unhappy about it, as you might imagine. And so she says there in chapter 30, verse 1, Now when Rachel saw that that she, that's Leah, bore, excuse me, now when Rachel saw that she, that's Rachel, bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, her sister being Leah, and said to Jacob, give me children or else I would die. She obviously hasn't had a lot of children yet, if she's going to say something like that. Ch- children, children are a blessing. But man, they're a lot of work, amen? All right. Just wanted to get that off my chest. Just like we were a lot of work for our parents. 
So it appears to me that Rachel is sort of unreasonable. Um, she's acting like it's Jacob's fault that she's barren. But when you go back to chapter 29 and you look at verse 31, it's actually God's sovereignty that allowed Rachel to be barren. It says in chapter 29, verse 31, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So don't blame Jacob for something that God himself has has caused. So what she is saying here is sort of on the unreasonable side. And she says to her husband, give me children or I'm going to die. Now there's a little irony here. Because the last son that she will be pregnant with is someone called Benjamin the last of the twelve. And in the process of delivering Benjamin, Rachel really will die. Genesis 35, verses 18 and 19, it says, It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to uh, Ephratah, that is Bethlehem. So it's kind of interesting for her to make this statement because in Genesis chapter 35, she really will die giving birth to Benjamin. More on that later. Not today, by the way, but later. When we get to Genesis 35, around the year 2027, I think, we'll be there. Notice Jacob's uh, response to Rachel and what she's saying that seems unreasonable. It says in verse 2, Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So first you see an emotional response. He's angry because um, he's being blamed for something that he's not causing. And then there's a, a verbal reaction where Jacob here is recognizing God's providence in the whole thing. And then you go down to verse 3, and Rachel makes an offer. She said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. I can't get pregnant, so take my handmaiden, Bilhah. Now, where did Bilhah come from? Um, Bilhah, you'll discover her in Genesis twenty-nine, twenty-nine. She was sort of given as a wedding gift by Laban um, when Jacob finally consummated his marriage, his relationship to Rachel. Genesis 29, 29 says, Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to to his daughter Rachel as her maid. I can't get pregnant, so get her pregnant. And any children that are born out of that union, I will become their legal Mother, and we have to do it this way because my sister, your other wife, has four children. I don't have any. You might recall that this is the identical thing that Abraham did and Sarah back in Genesis 16. Sarah could not get pregnant, and so Sarah said to Abram, then Abram, his name hadn't been changed yet, go and impregnate my handmaiden, Hagar. And so what you see here is Jacob and Rachel making the exact same mistake that grandfather Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, made. And you would think that Jacob could kind of look back on family history and say, you know, I don't think that's going to work out so well. We need to wait upon the Lord. Because after all, the Hagar-Ish, uh, the Hagar-Abraham um, line gave birth to the Ishmaelites, which became perennial enemies of the nation of Israel. And in fact, when you study out their genealogy, they're enemies of the nation of Israel. Not that God doesn't love them. Not that God hasn't provided salvation for them. But they're enemies of the nation of Israel right down to the present hour. That green area represents Islamic countries in the Middle East. 
it's that kind of country that local Muslims want to turn the United States into. A theocracy just like what you see dispersed throughout the Middle East. This is their worldview. This is what consistent Islam teaches. It does not understand, nor does it seek to recognize separate sovereigns, church and state. So those green areas there are Islamic countries that are threatening to drive the nation of Israel into the Mediterranean Sea constantly. That little red dot, we had to put an arrow there just so you could see where it is, is the nation of Israel. And what the world community says is, look, um, if Israel would just give up a little bit more territory, we'd have peace in that region. Every time you hear the word peace process from political leaders, that's what they're saying. By the way, you'll never see this map on CNN, MSNBC. You'll never see it on even on Fox News. You'll never see it on any of our major political cable outlets because the world community is addicted to this land for peace mindset Whereas if you just take a geography lesson, you can see how lopsided that is and how it really will never work. Islam will never be satisfied until Israel doesn't exist anymore. That's their true goal. That is their true agenda. And that's a struggle that the nation of Israel is in right down to the present time. And it all started because Abraham stepped out of the will of God and impregnated Hagar, giving rise to the Ishmaelites. And so you would think that Jacob would say, you know, that scenario didn't work real well with my grandfather Abraham, so let's not go down that road. But, of course, he doesn't do that, and he accepts Rachel's offer here. There's a famous saying, and you all know it. It says, those who do not learn from history are condemned to what? Repeat it. Famous, famous saying. And here's an example where I believe Jacob and Rachel really haven't learned from history. History, I think, that was accessible to them. The book of Daniel, chapter 5 and verse 22 God tells a man named Belshazzar, the last reigning king of the Persian Empire, that you're accountable for what happened, not for what happened, but from learning what happened to Belshazzar, who's earlier in your family tree. may have said that wrong. Let me restate it. Belshazzar, you're accountable for learning from what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, who was earlier in your family tree. But Belshazzar, you've learned nothing. This is the infamous handwriting on the wall chapter where God told Belshazzar that your days as the ruler of Persia and the Persian Empire itself are now over. Daniel chapter 5, verse 22, after describing what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, God, through Daniel, says, Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. You have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. To whom much is given, much is what? Expected. God has given us many examples in our own families of spiritual failures. God expects us to learn from those spiritual failures. And not simply to reduplicate, to replicate the mistakes of our parents and grandparents. You know, a lot of people will go on and on about how upset they are with their parents and their parents did this wrong and their parents did that wrong. The question is, have you learned from it? Or are you just going to go out in your life and redo the same, same mistakes? This book, the Bible, is filled with examples of people who live for God. And people who did not. You look at the story of David. Some of his life he's living for God. Some of his life he's not. You look at the story of Solomon. You get to the very end of his life. 
It doesn't seem like he's living for God towards the end of his life, like he was living for God at the beginning of his life. And we have a tendency to kind of look down our nose at such examples. But the truth of the matter is, are we reading and learning from what they did wrong? So we do not reproduce it and replicate it in our own lives. That's why these negative examples constantly are given. This is why I am convinced that man did not write the Bible. God ultimately wrote the Bible. Of course, he used men to pin the pages of God's word, but God is the ultimate writer of Scripture. If man had written this book, man would make man look good all the time. But you read the Bible and you discover that people don't look so good sometimes. Because God is the one that allowed these historical examples to exist in the Bible because he knew that we would need to learn lessons about what not to do as much as learn lessons about what we should do. There's a lot in the Bible about what you should do, but there's an awful lot in the Bible about what you shouldn't do. Just look at these negative examples. Look at negative examples of people around you. Look at negative examples of people you work with. Look at negative examples of people in your own family lineage and tree. And rather than, you know, developing an attitude of haughtiness and pride, you just ask yourself, well, am I going to make the same mistakes or not? Belshazzar, you should have known better. And I think in this case, Jacob and Rachel, just based on what had happened with Abraham, should have known better as well. But at any rate, you have now Rachel's offer. And what we have to understand is that the law of Moses had not yet been given. I mean, isn't this fornication or isn't this adultery when... Jacob and Rachel hatch this plot for Jacob to impregnate Billa so Rachel can have children. I mean, what kind of morals and ethics is that? Isn't that adultery? Well, keep in mind that the law of Moses, which prohibits adultery, would not be given for six centuries. So there was no, best I can tell, clear... um, Statement of God's will concerning what they could do, should do, shouldn't do in this circumstance. It seems to be less than spiritual as far as I can see it. But don't judge them by the standards of the Mosaic Law because the Mosaic Law had not been given yet. In fact, the Mosaic Law would not be given at Mount Sinai for another roughly 600 years. So this is a very sticky situation, it's a very messy situation, it's somewhat of an ugly situation, and yet what does God do with it? He takes what's ugly and he turns it around for good. Because the great tribes of the nation of Israel are going to come through these unholy unions. You... um, Go down to verse 4, in fact, before we get to verse 4... Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, So in Genesis 30, verses 3 and 4, Rachel's despair led to her offer of Bilhah to Jacob with verse 3 describing the offer. Behold, my maid Bilhah, go unto her that she might bear upon my knees, meaning Rachel would be the legal mother. Have children by Bilha, and I'll become their legal mother. Now, Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, this was in keeping with the Code of Hammurabi, which is a kind of a legal code that predates the Law of Moses probably by about four or five hundred years. The Code of Hammurabi. This was in keeping with the Code of Hammurabi, and for that reason it was Rachel, not Bilha, who named the children. Because Bilhah was the handmaiden of Rachel, Rachel would be the legal mother, and I also may obtain children by her, literally, that I may be builded by her. In other words, she's going to have the children, Jacob through Bilhah, but I'm going to be their legal mother, Rachel says. I'll name the children. Now, when Rachel says that, it is in keeping with everything we know of this culture. Because what she just did there is consistent with 
a legal code called the Code of Hammurabi. Now, we talk in this church about a lot of weird stuff. We talk about the Nuzi tablets. We talk about the Code of Hammurabi. And the reason we bring these things into our teaching of the Bible is we want people to understand that the Bible is a culturally accurate book. Everything that's happening here is consistent with everything that we know about the patriarchal world. Thank you, Nuzi tablets. Thank you, Code of Hammurabi. And I bring these things up to show you that when you read this book, you're not reading Jack and the Beanstalk. You're not reading Veggie Tales. You're not reading Tall Tales. It's not Cartoon Hour. This is actual history that actually transpired. And the youth of this country need to understand this because what they are told over and over again is the Christians and the Christians in the church, they're just doing the spiritual thing. But we in the public schools, we're the true historians. And people are taught to divide the sacred versus the secular. Yeah, you can develop whatever spiritual lessons you want from this, but it really isn't history. It is history. It's, it's accurate to a point of everything we know about the patriarchal time period, the Code of Hammurabi, the Nuzi tablets, etc. bring these things out. That's why I make you aware of these things. You go to verse 4 and you have the consummation of the relationship between Jacob and Bilhah. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And now you have a conception. Verse 5, Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Well, does this son have a name? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 6, then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. What she says here is God has judged... God has vindicated me. My sister has four children. At least I, through Bilhah, legally have one. And so Rachel kind of took this as the vindication of God. And in Hebrew, the name Danan means judge. And so she named him Dan, which means judge. The Lord has judged me. The Lord, in other words, has vindicated my circumstances. Now, who was this uh, tribe of, of Dan later on in Jewish history? Um, they were a bunch of folks that behaved badly. Let's just put it that way. It was the tribe of Dan in the book of Judges, once Joshua conquered the land. The book of Joshua is followed by the book of Judges, and it was Dan that brought into the new conquered land of Canaan, later to become the land of Israel, they brought in idolatry into the land of Israel. This is what the Danites did. Judges 8 verses, excuse me, 18 verses 30 and 31 says, The sons of Dan set themselves for themselves the graven image. And Joshua, excuse me, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, Moses, in other words, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven images, which he had made. And all that time, the house of God was at Shiloh. Now, the Ten Commandments are very clear that they were given at Mount Sinai before they entered the land of Israel. You're not, you shouldn't have any, not you shouldn't, it's not a suggestion. It's you will not, it's a command, have any gods before me. And the least of which, when you put these two commandments together, you shouldn't have graven images. And so here comes the Jewish nation into the land of Canaan, later to become the land of Israel. They conquered it, book of Joshua, and things are going along pretty well until the Danites start to behave badly. And they brought idolatry into God's nation. 
And that's the idolatry that plagues the nation of Israel for 800 years. As the Apostle Paul says, you know, um, a little bit of yeast leavens the whole lump. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. You allow sin in and it eventually spreads. Which, by the way, is exactly what's happening in the United States. People say, well, I'm glad it's just those blue states that are doing that stuff. I mean, we're in Texas. That will never come here. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you that that's not the nature of sin. The nature of sin is to spread. And if they're doing all the transgender stuff on the East Coast and the West Coast, in the bluest of the blue, I, I hope we're not so naive as to think that's just going to stay contained out there somewhere. Eventually, it's going to come knocking on our front door, if it hasn't already, because that's the nature of sin. This is why the Bible teaches, in terms of the life of the church, the doctrine of ecclesiastical separation. You have to separate from movements or groups that are no longer God-honoring because a little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump. That's exactly what happened with the Danites and how idolatry spread. It did not stop. And it led right up to the dispersion of the northern tribes in 722 B.C. And later the southern tribes, in particular Judah, were taken into the Babylonian captivity. It all started with Dan, the child that's born here. Some have argued that that is why Dan is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, which is a description of the 12 tribes evangelizing the world in the tribulation period, a great honor. And you'll discover that Dan is not mentioned there. Now, through Joseph is going to come Ephraim and Manasseh, so at least we can plug up the missing Dan with another tribe to get the number 12 to work, but Dan isn't mentioned. Why is Dan not mentioned? We're not told, but many people have speculated they're not mentioned because of the bad behavior of the Danites in terms of introducing idolatry into the land of Israel in the book of Judges, which plagued the nation right up to the eve of the Babylonian captivity. And yet, so interesting that when you study the Millennial Kingdom, the 12 tribes are mentioned. Are your eyes good? Who's the tribe at the very top there? There's Dan, along with Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, gee, Pastor, I'd love to know where these these tribes came from. So glad you asked. That's why we're in chapters 29 and 30. By the time we get outside of these chapters, and this is why I've entitled this little series within our series, (laughs) Jacob's Dozen, you'll know exactly where these tribes came from. It is so interesting to me that Dan is mentioned in the Millennial Kingdom, even though Dan behaved badly and may have lost the privilege of evangelizing the world in the tribulation period, God never forgot about Dan and restores Dan in the kingdom age. Ezekiel chapter 48 and verse 1 mentions Dan in the millennial kingdom. It says, Now these are the names of the tribes from the northern extremity beside the way of Hethlon to uh, let's see, Lebohamoth, as far as Hazar Enon at the border of Damascus, towards the north side of Hamath, running from east to west. Dan, first one mentioned, one portion, a millennial prophecy. You see Dan mentioned a few verses later in Ezekiel 48, verse 32. It says on the east side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates the gate of Joseph, one the gate of Benjamin, one the gate of Dan. So why is it that a tribe that behaves badly is restored in the millennial kingdom? And here's the answer. God is a God of grace. 
We can do an awful lot of things to mess up our lives and disqualify us for usefulness, but God never forgets about us because we're saved ultimately by his grace. You might be sitting here today thinking, oh, I've gone too far. I've disqualified myself. The Lord could never use me. I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, but I messed up a lot of things. I'm not qualified to be used by God. And yet we're comforted by things like this, demonstrating that God does use and restore broken, penitent vessels. Just read the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, fleeing prophet. Go to Nineveh in the east. He went west to Tarshish, opposite direction. Jonah number 2, praying prophet. Lord, get me out of this belly of the fish and I'll do whatever you want. Divine discipline. Jonah chapter 3, preaching prophet. Repent, Ninevites, or God is going to destroy the city of Nineveh, and lo and behold, the whole city repents. Jonah chapter 4, pouting prophet. Lord, I'm really mad that your grace went to those people. When in reality, Jonah needed the grace of God as much as the Ninevites did. The Danites needed the grace of God. You need the grace of God. I need the grace of God. You know, Peter, when he denied the Lord three times, could you imagine what was going through his mind? How he was unusable before God, and yet God graciously restored Peter. He asked Peter three times, do you love me? Why three times? Because he just denied the Lord three times. If you love me, then feed my sheep. And he restored Peter, who had denied the Lord three times, to a position of usability and honor. That's what God did with Jonah. Because in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, at the height of Jonah's disobedience, this is what your Bible says. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I love it. He got a commissioning the second time. Why, why did he have to get a commissioning the second time? Because he messed everything up the first time. And Jonah probably thought to himself, God doesn't want to use me, and yet God did want to use Jonah, even in his broken state. That is the agenda of God. Because at the end of the day, folks, we're dealing with a God of grace. Yes, he's a God of holiness. Yes, he's a God of righteousness. But he's a God of grace. He ultimately restored Dan. He restored Jonah. He restored Peter. He'll do that in your life if you let him. That's why I'm sort of, um, when a pastor falls, does something he shouldn't do, particularly if the pastor is popular, there's sort of a mindset, it's almost a pharisaical mindset that takes over in the body of Christ where it's like, let's throw so many rocks at this guy so that he's dead. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is far more merciful than most Christians. Jesus is far more merciful than most churches. Jesus is far more merciful than most houses having spiritual leaders. Because the goal of Jesus at the end of the day is to restore what's broken. I understand that you don't just grab someone that's fallen and throw them right back into the ministry. There has to be some kind of restorative process. But sometimes I get the feeling that people are so aggressive against a fallen servant that we've, we've left out the restoration part. God restored Dan. God restored Jonah. God restored Peter. God restored David. I mean, you want to talk about someone that really messed things up. David. Talk about murder and adultery, not in that order. First adultery, then murder. And then he lied about it for a period of time. 
I mean, aren't there some of the Ten Commandments against that stuff? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. David had three of the three. And if you don't think that God can use um, a, a restored, broken vessel, then you might as well go to the book of Psalms and rip the book of Psalms right out of your Bible. Because most of those Psalms were written by David after his time of restoration. God is in the restoration business. He certainly is with the tribe of, of Dan. But the children keep coming. We have a second conception here through Billa. Look at verse 7. So Rachel's maid conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Does this second son have a name? Glad you asked. Verse 8. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. And I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. So Rachel says, well, I've got two children. They're not from my own body, but they're legally mine. My sister has four natural children. So I'm sort of in this competition with my sister, Leah. But at least I've got two children. I've wrestled and prevailed over Leah. And the word in Hebrew for wrestle is Naphtali. And so this child was named Naphtali, literally meaning my wrestling. So Reuben to see, Simeon to hear, Levi attached, Judah praise, Dan judged, Naphtali wrestle. And of all of the churches that are meeting in the United States today, how many of them are actually giving this kind of information? I mean, I would love to know the number of preachers that are teaching on the origin of the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet, despite a lack of attention to it, it's part of the Bible. This is one of the reasons that I love to go through the Bible verse by verse. Because when I'm teaching the Bible verse by verse, I'm not picking the topics. God is. I mean, I would never wake up one day and say, you know, I think I need to do a sermon series on the 12 tribes of Israel. Because that requires study and work to get into it, to try to understand it. But when you're moving verse by verse, you're forced to confront what's there. Even things that seldom get attention, even though things that to us look a little strange, it's part of the Word of God. And now we have another set of two friends coming, uh, two sons, I should say, coming from Zilpah. Billa, verses 1 through 8. Zilpah, verses uh, 9 through 13. And notice this interaction with Zilpah. You see Leah's offer. Tell me if this doesn't ring a bell. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing... So, I've got four sons, but I'm not getting pregnant anymore. Well, just wait, Leah. You're going to get two others, and you're going to get a daughter. But there's a season here where she stopped bearing. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So, Leah seems to be following the bad example of her sister Rachel. This um, is a lot how sin works when you take your eyes off God and you're looking for standards in your life. We typically turn to standards that are less than perfect. The youth, even adults, look at Hollywood. They look at YouTube, they look at social media for standards, and oftentimes those standards are less than perfect. This is why 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's a lesson my, my dad taught me from a very early age. He always said, Andrew, now when he said Andrew, I had to pay attention because typically I went by Andy, but when he 
use my full name, Andrew, particularly when they threw in my middle name, Andrew Marshall. I was like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. But every once in a while, my dad would, you know, use my full name, Andrew or Andrew Marshall. He would say to me over and over again, do not let your friends pick you. You pick your friends. He said it with such frequency, with such regularity, it sort of became um, an operating principle in my life. I'm going to pick my friends. I'm not going to let my friends pick me because show me a person's friends. Show me their morality. Show me their quality of life. Show me their spirituality. Show me the decisions that they're making. And I'll show you where said person is going to end up 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And so Leah is following here the the bad example set by Rachel and offering her own handmaiden to uh, Jacob. Uh, where did uh, Zilpah come from? You'll find her in Genesis 29, 24, concerning Jacob's first marriage. It said Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So, the law of Moses, of course, has not been given yet. And so now we have a birth, verse 10 of Genesis chapter 30. Verse 10 says, Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Well, does this son have a name? I'm glad you asked. Verse um, 11, then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. What does Gad mean? Gad means fortunate. It comes from, in Hebrew, begad, which means with fortune. She considered herself fortunate of good fortune. Fortune has come to me. Leah does through this birth that's happened through Jacob and Zilpah. And so that's where the name Gad comes from, and that's so that's why one of the twelve tribes of Israel is named Gad. But there's more. We have a second birth from Zilpah. Notice verse twelve. Leah's maid bore Jacob a second son. Does this second son have a name? I'm glad you asked that. Verse 13 gives you the name. The name in verse 13 says, Then Leah said, Happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Happy am I. This comes from the Hebrew, uh, let's see if I'm pronouncing this right, Berashari, to be happy. In Hebrew, Asher means happy, and so this is where the tribe of Asher comes from. Wow. Then Leah is now going to have two natural sons and a daughter. And what's going to be involved in this is a sexual stimulant. Some would call this, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, an aphrodisiac through mandrakes. And you're saying, Pastor, keep going. I want to hear about this. (laughs) But you see, I've got to bait you a little bit to get you to come back next week and learn about this sexual stimulant. We might entitle next week's message, Sexual Stimulant Part (laughs) 1. So it just gets more and more interesting, doesn't it? So here's what the total looks like so far. Reuben means to see. Simeon means to hear. Levi attached. Judah prays. Those are the four sons coming from Leah. That's her natural body. That's at the end of chapter 29. And then we have these sons coming through Bilhah. Dan means judge. Naphtali means wrestle. And then we have two more sons coming from Zilpah. Gad means fortunate. 
Asher means happy. And then we're going to get two more sons via the sexual stimulant coming from Leah, two sons and a daughter. And keep your eye on that daughter. Her name is Dinah. And Dinah is going to become very prevalent in Genesis 34. Because Genesis 34 is there as an explanation as to why God had to get his elect nation out of Canaan at the time. Because something really bad is going to happen to Dinah via the Canaanites. And you don't really understand the magnitude of the Canaanite sin until you understand what happened to Dinah, Genesis 34. Well, where did Dinah come from? It came from Leah's daughter, Dinah. So next week, Leah, via the sexual stimulant, is going to have two more natural sons. Their names are going to be Issachar and Zebulun. And then there's a little girl born, Dinah, who is very prominent part of the story in Genesis 34, which is a very ugly story. And yet that story explains the wickedness of the Canaanites and why God had to get his choice nation out of Canaan into Egypt to be incubated for a period of about 400 years. Because as we said before, bad company corrupts what? Good morals. You want a nation that's just like the Canaanites? Leave them where they are. But God is into sanctification. He's into separation. And you don't understand why the separation has to happen until you understand what happened to Dinah. And you have to have knowledge of where Dinah came from, which we'll take a look at next week. So all of this to say is God is taking the ugly and turning it around for good. Which is the ministry of Jesus? He is in the restoration business. He takes lemons and turns them into lemonade constantly. That's his specialty. And you might be saying to yourself, well, I'm pretty messed up. I wish the Lord will do that in my life. I'm here to tell you that he will do it. But it requires an initial step on your part. You have to enter into a relationship with him. You cannot enter into a relationship with him without the gospel. Gospel means good news because Jesus paid the complete price. Jesus' final words on the cross were, it is finished. Everything necessary to bridge the gap between sinful man and a holy God, allowing us to enter into a relationship with the Lord, has been accomplished. There's nothing else for you to do other than to receive it as a gift. And according to the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, there's only one way to receive a free gift from God, and that's by faith. This is the design of God. If you won't receive it as a gift by way of faith, you can't have this gift. Because if you receive it your own way by works, it's no longer a gift. It's something you earned. What we're dealing with here is a salvation package that comes to you by grace And the only way to receive it is by faith. And so that's why we exhort people, anyone within the sound of my voice, listening in the watching, listening online, or the archives archives after the fact, or in the building, watching and listening, anybody that can hear my voice, as the Spirit of God convicts men and women of their need to trust Christ for salvation, which is what the Spirit does. He's been dispatched into the world for the purpose of convicting us of our need to trust Christ. He won't trust Christ for you, but He will certainly convict you of your need to do that. In fact, He will annoy you of your need to do that until your dying day. That's how much He loves you and wants a relationship with you, and wants to take what's broken in your life, in my life, and turn it around for something good. 
But you can't have it unless you have an initial relationship with Him. And you only can have a relationship with Him when you trust Him for salvation. You don't trust your good works for salvation. You trust in the good work that He did for you 2,000 years ago. That's what we mean by believe. It means to trust. Other synonyms are reliance, dependence, confidence. This is what the Bible 160 times tells the lost sinner to do. It is not a matter of walking an aisle, raising a hand, joining the church, repenting of all of your known sins. You know, a lot of people preach the gospel that way. You've got to repent of all of your sins and come to Jesus. That's kind of like taking a bath before you take a shower when you think about it. There, is, there are sins that you have committed, that I have committed, we can't even remember. How in the world am I supposed to repent of all of my sins and come to Jesus? Jesus never says, repent of your sins and come to him. The gospel is not clean yourself up and come to Jesus. If you think that's what the gospel is, you've got the wrong gospel. The gospel is come to Jesus just like you are. And trust in what He has done. And then when the Holy Spirit comes into you, believe me, He'll start some scrubbing and some cleaning and some correction. None of of which can happen until you have the Holy Spirit in you. And you can't have the Holy Spirit in you until you're regenerated, born again. And you can't be born again until you trust in what He's done for you. So the first step in being brought into these promises is to trust in the finished work of Jesus. It's not a God-bought lunch and so I need to leave the tip. It's come as you are. It's all complete. Receive me as a gift by way of faith. And I'll take your life and turn it into something that you never dreamed possible because I'm in the business of taking lemons and turning them into lemonade. I'm in the restoration business. So we invite anybody within the sound of my voice, within their heart of hearts, to trust in the work of the Savior. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for these first uh, 13 verses of Genesis 30 and how they jump off the page from the ancient world and speak into our lives. Help us to walk these truths out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.